This is chapter 123, 123 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we explore what it means to be a mother. Is it genes or something more? With thriller writer Kira Peacock. Then we get back to nature and its power to heal with Catherine Forbes Riley. One of the more controversial issues in the scientific community today is the idea of genetically engineered babies. It's already been done in China and in places like Greece and the UK, where doctors have successfully created embryos made with DNA from more than one person. This process informs Mother Knows Best, a new domestic thriller in which the desire to have a healthy child drives a heartbroken mother to partake in an illegal medical experiment. I recently spoke with author Kira Peikoff about the science and ethics behind her story. You really do explore the dark side of medical science and genetics in this book. Yeah, that was one thing that really interested me about the topic. So my background professionally is in bioethics. I have a master's from Columbia in the field, and I find the whole area fascinating, um, both on a level of the science involved, the personal dynamics, the, the legal effects, and the societal implications. Now, I don't want to give anything away by saying what route she takes, but the idea and the road that she explores it's something that's actually been done before, not here in the U.S., but in other countries in the world, right? Yes, it is illegal here. The FDA will not allow any scientific research that um, manipulates the DNA of a human embryo to proceed to a pregnancy. But the U.K. is allowing this type of research to move forward under their uh, regulatory system. So it's all above water. It's nothing happening below ground or anything like that. It's also happening in Greece. There's clinics that are testing it out. It's actually been shown to help not only from uh, for preventing genetic illness, but also, interestingly, it's helping some infertile couples get pregnant as well. Now, do you think the U.S. is just sticking its head in the sand by not allowing this type of research? Or is there really a danger to manipulating embryos in this way? I think that the FDA is being very regressive in its stance. So they're not even allowing a review board to consider such research. It's literally the policy today is you can't even apply as a scientist to have this experiment studied or approved at all. It's just completely shut down. And, of course, you know, I understand the hesitation around creating designer babies and those more types of science fiction scenarios that have us all you know, immediately worried about the future of society. But this is very different. This is about trying to prevent an illness in a child. And I think that uh, a medical use of this technology, if it's appropriately studied and is safe, is a valid ethical use. And I think the FDA really should reconsider its stance and at least allow this to be studied. In spite of everything, you can totally understand why a mother and a parent would want to do everything possible to make sure you have a healthy child. Exactly. I think, you know, as parents, our fundamental belief and motivation is to protect our kids. And there's nothing more important than that in in life. And now, were you a mom when you started writing this book? So interestingly, I was not. I was interested in the idea. I'd heard about the, uh, the procedure involved. I was really intrigued by it. And I started to write. And then the week after I began the book, I found out I was pregnant. And, uh, 
you know, my husband and I had been trying for a while, so I was really excited about it. So as my character was pregnant in the story, I was also pregnant. And then the book took me a very long time to write. So eventually in the book, she gave birth. And that was actually around the time I gave birth. And so I was able to use my own experience to inform the, the emotions involved in the writing of it um, and the, her motivation as, you know, wanting to become a mom. Um, she really becomes kind of obsessed with the health of her kid and, and to do everything she can to make sure that her kid is healthy. And I think I was also pretty nervous as a new mom and wanting to, my son to have the best possible start and make sure everything went well. And um, I, of course, took those emotions a little bit further in this story for the sake of drama. And it totally makes sense then why you dedicated the book to him. Yeah, yeah. So he's three now. He's just about three. So the book itself took about three and a half years altogether um, from beginning to now. And I have a little bit of experience as a mom. Um, I think enough to really relate to to the motivations of this the characters in the story. Do you think that the world is ready for this kind of science and it's just a matter of time before it becomes the norm? I think so. You know, if you look back at IVF, um, that was developed really under the radar on purpose in 1978 by two researchers who knew the world would be very scandalized by a test tube baby. And so they didn't tell anybody about their experiment until the baby was born and she was born healthy. That's, that's uh, the famous Louise Brown. And today I know tons of people who have had IVF successfully and many families that wouldn't have been able to be created otherwise. So we just accepted it. it's routine. It's nothing controversial whatsoever. And this is, uh, you know, de- a couple number of decades later. So I think it's the same potentially with this kind of experiment where it's getting a little deeper into the, um, changing biological processes, not just changing the location of f- fertilization, but still it's for the same end. It's to have a healthy kid. And when that's the goal, I think it's a noble goal. And I think eventually society will accept it because the upsides will be better than the other, the, you know, having a, a kid that has a horrible disease. You know, stepping away from the science for a moment, I think also what your book tries to get across is what does it mean to be a mom? Is it just, you know, contributing genetics and biology or is it about who raises you? Exactly. Yeah. I think um, to me personally, I think the answer is the person who raises you and who has that parental love and protectiveness and care about the, the child and the child's best interest at heart. I think those feelings more than anything else make up a parent. So are you going to continue with such a weighty and controversial subject for your next book? Actually, yes. I kind of uh, have a, an enjoyment of delving into these really tricky and controversial areas. I think they're just such good fodder for fiction where we want to have high stakes and a lot of excitement and drama and uh, moral questions around human life are the most charged questions there are. So my next book, it's uh, still very early. I'm still just in the beginning stages of thinking about it and planning it out, but I'm probably going to set it in a slightly near future setting, maybe 10, 20 years from now, in which it's possible to um, create embryos simply from skin cells, which is already research that's well underway today, and it has been successfully achieved in mice. Um, And if that becomes a reality for humans, it would mean 
anyone could become a parent whatsoever, any age, any gender, any combination of people, and it would completely radicalize the way we reproduce. It's fascinating and a little terrifying at the same time. Exactly. Perfect for another thriller, right? (laughs) Exactly. We've been talking with Kira Peikoff. Her book is Mother Knows Best. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it. Thank you so much. The healing power of love, art, nature, and animals are central to The Bobcat, the debut novel from Catherine Forbes Riley. She told me her story is in essence a love story, but also one about how we shut down and shut out people after a trauma. She started off our interview with a vivid description of the book and its four main characters. Laura Lee, the boy, the hiker, and the bobcat. And all of them have um, experienced a trauma of some kind. And together they sort of work through them and, and, and come out on another side. Uh, Laura Lee herself, um, during her freshman spring at a large Philadelphia university, um, was given a drugged beer at a, uni- uh, at a fraternity party and then raped. Uh, when the bobcat begins, it's three years later, also spring. Um, and the prior fall, she had finally... Uh, sort of escaped a kind of paralysis the assault had left her in, and she transferred from Philly to a tiny college deep in rural Vermont. Um, And she's just been through the longest and coldest winter of her life, Uh, and she's emerging as if from a kind of hibernation. In Vermont, spring has this really upward driving energy that can really influence your physical and emotional state, and that's what Laura Lee experiences as the bobcat begins. She's an artist, and since Moving to Vermont, she's been doing these cartoon-style pieces in that they're panels on a page, um, like a cartoon, and and, and there's a narrative running through them, um, but they're not funny. They're actually quite dark. Art is her sort of one of her only remaining connections to the world at this point. She's all in her head. She just lives entirely inside her head, pretty much. But art um, requires her to stay visually connected and thereby, you know, connected. And she also babysits a little boy who's two and a half, and, and he's her other um, remaining connection to the world when the bobcat begins. She sort of has a, a, a fear of man, at the, males at this point, but he's so little, even though he's a, a boy, he just doesn't um, trigger her mandred. He just doesn't have enough in the way of personal substance yet. And In fact, on the contrary, when she's with him, she finds she can see the world through his eyes, you know, as entirely new again and, and leave her baggage behind. So every day they go and play, uh, in the woods behind her cottage, down where there's a river. Um, and um, one day, they, they've collected a bunch of treasures along the way, and they, and they go, the first third of the river is, is very shallow, and so they splash out to this wide, flat rock called Thinking Rock, and they sit on it. Um, they can sit on it for an hour, and he'll throw his treasures in, and she'll, she'll just look around and, and, you know, see things through the vision of, of her art, you know, and imagine drawing them. Um, but on this day, you know, they're doing that and they're facing the deep side and suddenly a squirrel rattles in a tree and the boy grabs her by the shoulders and starts saying, ka, ka. And she looks around and um, at first she just sees the forest um, and, and, and the trail they came from. And then, and then a shape detaches from the trees and starts moving slowly towards the river. And, and the boy was right. It, it was a cat, a very big cat, three times the size of a regular cat. And... Um, it starts to drink, and the boy is very excited. He wants to pet it, um, but, she, but Laura Lee is, is, is panicked, frightened, because the cat looks up when he um, cries out, and um, 
she sees it's beautiful, but she also um, interprets it as a predator. Um, and so she's thinking about a way to get a, get away from this thing. And she turns around and looks behind her at the at the wide river. But, you know, it's early spring in Vermont, and um, the ice is just broken. So there are still these white shards occasionally drifting down it. It's very, very cold. And, and you know, that would be her only outlet, and they can't it's, – it's too cold to swim. So And then the boy starts saying, pa, pa, again, and she swivels back around and now another, another form emerges from the trees, and this one's male. So she's swamped by panic again, but then she sees his boots. Um, this tall male form is wearing boots, and he's also got a pack on his back. And now her panic dissipates as she um, realizes that he's an AT hiker probably, and probably a lost one at that because the Appalachian Trail um, is a couple miles away from where they're sitting now in the, in the forest. And, and as he gets closer, now she starts wondering if she should warn him about this cat because his head's down. He doesn't appear to have, have noticed it. Um, but just as she thinks that, or just after, he looks up. And, and um, she can tell by his face that there's no surprise. He's already surveyed the scene. He, he knows what's there. Um, and, he, and so she stays quiet, and he comes down to the water's edge, and the cat uh, gets up and walks over to him and bumps its head against his knee, and he, he trails a hand down its back, and the boy is, you know, spasming with excitement in, in Laura Lee's arms. Um, but she ha- is sort of stunned to see that the, the bob... She, now she sees the bobcat from the side, and its um, belly is very swollen and distended, and it's um, pregnant. And she, you know, is shocked and sort of looks at the hiker, and um, as she does, she sees two tears um, trail down his cheeks, um, so that's the, the first meeting of them, and I think it sort of illustrates uh, the whole book. The hiker is, is very strange. I, I don't want to reveal too much. You know, his nose moves a lot, and he, he, he tends to tear up or, and pant, and he, he sort of avoids all human contact completely. Um, and she finds that very, very interesting, and it's the one thing that's able to cut through her mandred in a way that nothing else, nothing else has. Um, and so from there, a love story develops. You've said that the character of the hiker is really the one that formed first. How soon did the bobcat and everything she symbolizes in this book follow? So I knew early on I needed some mediation between the two of them. You know, if, if, if Laura Lee had just been in the um, woods alone that day, you know, with the boy, she never would have stuck around, you know. She, she, so so there needed to be a creature between them. It couldn't be a bear. Bears are really scary, <laughs> you know. And it just, I, I wanted it to ground this story in reality. Some people might be frightened by bobcats, but some people might not. It sort of is this liminal space. And, and, and a bobcat also sort of represents Laura Lee in many ways. It, this bobcat, you know, it was wounded by men and it's running, um, you know, it, it's elusive by nature. And it was also an animal that the bobcat could potentially, you know, tame in a way. Um, um, but also it was able to represent for Laura Lee, you know, sort of a step ahead to, to, so that she could see through the way the hiker treated the bobcat how he might treat her. You alluded to it briefly with how the hiker communicates. I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever read so much about nostrils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. One Goodreads reviewer says that they were referred to 37 times. So, uh, yeah, to, and to imbue each each uh, time with a different meaning was was quite a challenge. 
Another interesting thing is that most of the people in her life are not referred to by name for a majority of the book. Why did you take that approach? Yeah, that was an attempt on my part to to symbolize um, the shutting down of channels of communication after after trauma. You know, um, I'm a linguist by by trade, and Wittgenstein is a is a famous language philosopher, and he says the limits of our language are the limits of our world, and so uh, a, a definite noun, you know, keeps keeps an entity at a distance. Uh, when you when you give them a proper name, you let them into your into your world, into your language. But if you refer to them only as a definite noun, you you haven't let them in yet. And so at, as her world opens, she's able to name more things. I was really struck too by the the picture of nature that you're able to paint in this book. How vivid it is! It it just it comes off the page, but also to the parallels to what's going on in the outside world versus what's going on in. Lorelai's world and in her head. Yeah, I think the goal was like, so every, and it's still my goal as I work on my next book, it's like everything we see is really an, an, an internal reflection of us. Like if we're in a bad mood, you know, the sun feels too hot, you know what I mean? Whereas if we're in a good mood, it just feels like the sky is opening with light, you know? Sometimes nature can change your state, you know, if it surprises you. But, but, but most of the time, or, or half the time, it, it simply reinforces what we're already feeling. And I really wanted to achieve that, especially here in this natural space where it just sort of invites it. Are you someone then that usually accepts nature in a positive way? You know, I tend to like sunny days much more than cloudy days. But on uh, it rained, it poured the other night, and that was wonderful. We all went outside and stood in it, you know. <laughs> And Lorelai, as you mentioned, is an art student, and her drawings and her sketches, they do play a really large role in the book. Do you, by any chance, draw? Are you an artist? No, my husband is, um, and I've been, I've been with him for over 20 years now, and sort of I've, I've watched his career progress, and we, we talk often. You know, we go and have critiques in his studio, so I've learned a lot along the way. I don't really have the language of art. You know, he can, he can deconstruct the symbols and the you know, the line and the light in a very technical way. And I, I, I don't have, I'm not fluent in that language, but I can sit with the painting and I can sit with art and just feel it like, like he's taught me to, you know. And so that's what I really wanted to give Laura Lee in this book. And the references to both, you know, the classic masters, the modern masters, how did you decide which styles of painting and drawing you wanted to use to reflect Laura Lee's world? Yeah, well, you know, so a lot of it was simply that my husband loves Cezanne. He really loves Cezanne. And, and, you know, within that tradition, Monet comes out and he also loves Rembrandt. Um, so a lot of them were, were ones, he, he's got books lying all over the place and he'll just pick it up and be like, Kate, look at this line, you know, or something. Or look how he did this, you know, look how the gold, the, the light shines through, you know. So it was just names that were all around me. But also, you know, I... I, I if I, if I gave a very obscure reference, no one would really know what it... It would put more of the onus on me to describe it perfectly. Whereas if I say Monet, everybody sort of has an idea, you know, an immediate idea. So I tried to use ones that would evoke for a reader a certain image that then I could supplement with the words, you know, to, to, to bring it across. Because I'm not trying to be obscure here. I'm trying to use that as a, you know, another, another level of meaning through the text. 
this is sort of in the same vein, but but uh, a little bit of a step in a different direction. The cover of this book, I I love the cover of it. It reminds me of like natural stone, but at the same time, it looks just like all pink colors thrown together. I really love that cover. Yeah, too. it's and, it's great. And my editor said it sort of looks like um, blood blood cells too, which I thought was nice. Yes, good and thing. A, a little bit of a, a of a, a hint there for people who want to pick up the book and read it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you working on next? So it's 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 early days yet, um, but it's a so this one was a love story, and that one, my next one is a quest. Rather than dealing with sort of extraordinary people this time, I'm trying to deal with ordinary people, but um, they're in an extraordinary situation. So they're backpacking through Africa, and um, they're a a couple, um, not married, but essentially married, you know, in graduate school, uh, right after graduate school. And they um, discover along shortly after arriving in Johannesburg that she's pregnant. And it's supposed to be a sort of field work trip. Um, and they decide to keep going. But so it's an internal journey and an, and an external journey. And I'm guessing nature will play a large role again. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. maybe maybe a few bigger cats this time around. Yeah, right. <laughs> an elephant. There's going to be an elephant. <laughs> well, Catherine Forbes Riley, thank you for talking to us. Your new book is The Bobcat. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much, Lisa. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. If you already follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books, then you already know what's coming up next week. It's our conversation about the Dragon Lady, a real-life woman very much ahead of her time who had a pretty neat party trick involving a snake tattoo. That's all I'll say for now. Until then, keep calm and read a book. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.